0: listeners, my name is Veronica Kim and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Several years ago, a very old violin made it into the news during an auction in England. The price of the violin was $1.7 million. $1.7 million for an old violin? What a price! They found out that the violin belonged to Wallace Hartley, who was a leader of the band on the Titanic. Do you remember the Titanic? At that time, it was the newest passenger liner. Hartley went on the first voyage of the Titanic along with seven members of his band. This violin was the actual violin that he used to play for the passengers on the ship. It was when Wallace Hartley's violin ended up at this auction that made me think about the 1997 movie, The Titanic. It was on April 15th, 1912, when the Titanic carrying 2,200 passengers hit an iceberg. The Titanic sank four days into its voyage. It is ironic that this ship was described as a ship that would never sink. This accident took the lives of more than 1,500 passengers. Can you picture a scene from a movie, Titanic, after hearing this story? If you have watched the movie before, you probably know the scene that I am talking about we will continue our discussion after listening to the hymn
1: there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from
0: I remember the movie portrayed the scene very realistically. After the ship hit the iceberg, it filled up with water and sank into the ocean. As the ship was sinking, the atmosphere in the ship was chaotic. The passengers were doing everything they could to crowd into the limited number of lifeboats. Too few were provided for that many passengers. The passengers were frantic, screaming, and yelling as they tried to get into those few lifeboats but I remember one important scene from the movie. The ship was already sinking with the passengers that were frantic, trying to survive as one man stood on the deck playing his violin. The hymn that he played was, Nearer my God to thee, Nearer my God to thee, Even though it be a cross that raiseth me, Still all my song shall be, Nearer my God to thee. The man who played the song was the owner of the auction violin, Wallace Hartley. The movie that portrayed this true story was still filled with many parts that were made up or exaggerated, but Wallace Hartley, the band leader, is a true figure. When many people were screaming and running around afraid for their lives, Wallace Hartley stood on the deck and calmly played the hymn near my God to Thee, encouraging everyone to stay strong. I remember my eyes watering when I watched the part of the movie when Wallace picked up his violin and the other band members joined in. Wallace made me think a lot about how he faced his death. When he was about to sink into the freezing ocean, he did not join in the confusion but quietly praised God. If I was in that same situation, how would have I acted at that moment? Would I be able to praise God at the moment singing "Near my God to Be?" How would all of you handle this situation? What would you hold on to when you're about to sink into that dark and freezing ocean?
1: He says, Peace be still. He says, Be.
0: Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Timothy Killer of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Tale of Two Cities Part 2, based on Genesis chapter 4 verses 10 through 26. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy.
2: When God sends the people of Israel from Egypt into Canaan, He will not let them be exclusively agrarian. He commands them to build cities in the book of Numbers. When God sends the people of Israel out into exile in Babylon, that pagan awful city that actually took them prisoner, and they really were there by, they were prisoners. What does he say? He says, seek the peace and prosperity of this city. Pray for it. Love it. Care for it. You know, make it a good place to live. When God sends Jonah, his prophet, to Nineveh, the big bad pagan city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the greatest city of the world at the time, at the very end he looks at Jonah and he says, look at 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. I love this city. How could you not love a city that size with those kinds of pe- all those needy people? In- Why don't you love the city? And, of course, the most amazing thing of all is that when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, the end of, the, of history, and actually we're going to go there, at the end of this series, when God has the world in the condition he wants it in, when he finally has the world exactly the way he wants it, it looks a lot like New York without the graffiti and a few other things. It's a city. The Bible is amazingly positive about cities. Why? The reason it's positive about cities is because when God made Adam and Eve creative, When he made them creative, it was inevitable that they would build cities. Cities are places of creativity. Cities are places where culture is forged. That's the reason why culture does not begin to happen until there's a city. Now, why? Well, I can give you a historical reason, but I can also give you a logical reason. The historical reason is, the fact is, a city was any settlement with a wall, and that wall created stability, and it was out there when somebody did something wrong, people just did blood feuds back and forth and they killed each other back and forth and they revenged each other. It was in the city that you had jurisprudence. It was in the city that you could have cases heard by judges and things could be dealt peacefully. You could have rule of law develop. It was in, out there, it was subsistence living. You made your own clothes, you, made your own, you grew your own food, you did everything, but in cities, you know, some people are better at making tools and some people are better at making food and some people are better at making clothes and now you have an economy. You have specialization. You have goods and services. And it was inside the wall. It's not the size of the, of, of the settlement, but the stability of it. It was in cities that human culture was able to develop at all. Well, you say, well, that's fine. Now, we don't need a wall. We don't have walls around cities. Where well, there are walls. they are great tourist attractions, but we don't do that anymore. We don't, need, we don't need that. So cities aren't important for culture anymore. Oh, yes, they are. They are still where. They're still the places by their nature that culture flows, from which culture flows. So as cities go, so goes the culture. You say, why? Well, because cities are places of density and diversity. Cities are places where there's more people like you than anywhere else, you know, and also more people unlike you than anywhere else. So, for example... Let me show you how it works on culture. First of all, there's more people like you than anywhere else. So let's just say you're a violinist and you're the best violinist in the state of Picka State. And you won the state competition. You're the best. And you get off the train in Penn Station or Grand Central Station and to your horror, you walk by some person playing the violin, you know, on the platform. People are throwing money into the, you know, the little violin case and she's better than you. And you go, "Oh no." And you start to you're gonna you, be, and so you start to practice, and you dig down deep, and everybody feels that way. There's, cities are places of massive zillions of people like you, more people like you than anywhere else, and that makes you dig down deep. But it's also true that it's that cities are places of more people unlike you than anywhere else. There's a diversity here you'll never see anywhere else. You'll meet people that you never otherwise would have met unless you went to a city, and as a result, you you have you're questioned. Everything you do is questioned. Everything you do, you have to compare and contrast and you, it makes you think creative thoughts that you never would have had otherwise. And also, it, many of the things that you came here thinking you were gonna do, you continue to do, but only after you've done a lot more thinking about them now because you're in cities. And because of the density and because of the diversity, because of the zillions of people unlike you and like you and the zillions of people unlike you, this is a crucible, this is a furnace out of which flow new and creative and innovative ideas and this is a result what comes out of the city goes out into the culture. And as, as the city goes, so goes the culture. And yet, cities are affected by sin. The density, the fact that there's so many more people like you here competing with you, should be stimulant, stimulation. And it is stimulant. It's great. But because of sin, it's also exhausting. It's dog-eat-dog, and, it's, it's, and it leads to burnout and the diversity, all the people who are very different than you. (laughs) It should be a stimulation to creativity, but, and it is, but it's also a place of conflict, constant conflict and fighting and division. But most of all, at the heart of cities is a battle. Will the culture be a culture in which we make products, supporting life to serve others, or basically, we're doing our work, we're making our products, we're doing, we're, you know, we're, we're working in the city and we're creating culture to make a name for ourselves, to get our own glory, to, to accrue power, and to exploit other people. Is human culture mainly my life to serve yours or you, your life to serve me? And that leads us to our final point. It's very hard to live in cities not being sucked into the culture of power, being sucked into burnout, being sucked into, into, into uh Um, conflict, how are you going to get the strength to be in a city? And by the way, if you want to make a difference in society, if you don't want to just have a happy life, just to have a happy life, you probably don't want to be here. Because Because of what? Because of the competition, because of the conflict, because of the density and diversity. But if you want to make a difference in society, if you want to make a difference in how human life goes, then you ought to be in cities. And yet it takes a tremendous power to avoid being sucked in as it were, a tremendous spiritual power and poise to not be sucked into the poisonous, distorted heart of human culture, especially as it's taking effect in cities. So how do you get that power? Lastly, there's a future city of grace that God is developing. How do we know that? Well, at the very, very end of the end of this chapter, it says, and Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel. Seth had a son, see, a new line. And at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. The word name comes up twice in this text. When Cain built a city, he named it. Not after God, like Jerusalem or something like that, the city of God's, the Lord's peace. He didn't name it after God. He named it after his own son. And in Genesis 11, the, the culmination of the line of the Canaanites, they build the Tower of Babel, which is a skyscraper, which is a city. And the reason why the Canaanites build this great city of Babel is to make a name for ourselves. Genesis 11, verse 4. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And that's what's wrong with cities. And that's what's wrong with culture. When you do work to make a name for yourself, when you go to cities to make a name for yourself, and that's, by the way, why almost everybody comes to New York, when work is really about you, not about producing products for human flourishing, when sex is really about you. Not to enter into a relationship in which you serve and you form a family and you bring about children and human flourishing. When, when it's about you, when it's to get a name for yourself, it creates the culture of death. And the city producing a culture of death. But there's a new line of people that God begins. And they're not there to make a name for themselves, but to call on the name of the Lord to live life for God's sake and to live life for their neighbor's sake. And that produces two kinds of societies, one based on power, one based on service, one based on making a name for themselves and one saying, all I want to do is honor the Lord's name. I want to have his name put on me. I want to be like him. That's pretty fascinating. Where do these two groups of people live? Well, they actually live in the same place. Because Jesus says in his famous sermon on the mount to his disciples, you are a light of the world. You are a city on the hill. Let your good works so shine that the pagans see them and glorify your father. And what Jesus Christ is saying there is that the line of Seth, the believers in God, and then eventually the believers in Christ are supposed to be an alternate city in every city. We're supposed to create a human society in which we're calling on the name of the Lord rather than trying to make a name for ourselves, in which case that'll transform everything, the way sex is used, the way money is used, the way power relationships are brought about, the way families uh, work, the way business practices are conducted, the way we spend our money, everything. And Jesus says, I want you to be a city on a hill, which means I want the city around you to see your good deeds. And good deeds doesn't just mean rectitude. It means service. In other words, the way you know you're part of the line of Seth, the way you know you're part of the city based on grace, the city of people calling on the name of the Lord, is whereas the city of Cain outside is suspicious of you because you don't have the right beliefs. But you, you inside the city, you love the people around you even though they don't believe at all like you do. You go to the mat for them. You sacrifice for them. See, that's what God said in Jeremiah 29 when he says, yes, that city oppressed you. Yes, that city persecuted you. Yes, that city will persecute you. But I want you to live in love and service toward them. How do you get the power to do that? You know what this is actually saying? Because actually, First Peter, in 1 Peter, the same thing is said that Jesus says, only he's even more explicit. He says, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It doesn't mean that they might accuse you of doing wrong. They will. Jesus and Peter are saying that if you want to be part of God's city of grace, the alternate city in every city, the city based on the name of God instead of making your own name, the city based on life through service, not death through power, then you are going to be constantly misunderstood. If we live the life we should in New York City, pouring ourselves out to make this a great place, we expect to be persecuted. That is to say, we expect at certain points to be misunderstood, vilified, you know, maybe even attacked, and we're not going to get upset about it because we were told that's part of what it means, to not be part of the city of man, to not be part of the city of Cain, to not marginalize and, and use power over our opponents, but basically serve them the way Christ served us. Well, where do you get the power to do that? Where do you get this power that we're supposed to have so we're not sucked into the ways of the world? Here. When Lamech, at the end of his poem, his song, says, Cain is avenged seven times and Lamech 77 times, or 70 times seven, does that remind you of anything? When the disciples asked Jesus, how often do we have to forgive? He said, not just seven times, but 70 times seven. Seven. And they said, Lord, how could we get the grace and the power to forgive people infinitely? You know what Jesus was doing? He was remembering the taunt of Lamech. And he was reversing it. You see, Lamech was saying, endless anger. I will never, never let go of my anger. I will never let go of my anger. I will always hold my anger. Endless anger. Endless revenge. And you know what Jesus is saying? The endless anger of human sin will be met by the endless love of God. And Jesus is saying, Lamech, though he had no right, said he would never let go of his anger. He would be endlessly revenging. You know what Jesus is saying? I, the Lord, I'm the only one that have the right to say that. I have the right to be endlessly angry at the human race, but I won't be. I'm going to be as merciful to you as to Cain, one of the most interesting things, nobody knows what the mark of Cain is. Okay, there we go, biblical selectivity again. Cain says, I'm so upset. He's not repenting, but I'm upset. Somebody's going to hurt me. So what does God do? He puts a mark on Cain, and that mark somehow protects him. We have no idea what it is. Was it a tattoo? But all we know is this, that, that, that though Cain deserved to be smitten to the ground, he got mercy. Well, how can a just God be merciful to Cain? How can a just God say, I will be endlessly forgiving to you? Very much the opposite of what Lamech said. I mean, how, how can God give us endless love and mercy here? Because the three things that Cain says are going to fall on him actually fell on Jesus. Do you see what those three things are? It's up here in verse 14. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And I will be hidden from your presence. But who was the restless wanderer on the earth? Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Whoever finds me will kill me. Yes, in the garden they found him and they took him to the cross and killed him. And on the cross he even lost the presence of God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there's the answer. First of all, how a just God can be merciful. Because God came to earth in Jesus Christ and he took the curse that really should fall on us. See, he curses Cain and then he marks him for mercy because the real curse fell on us so that the blessing on Jesus and on God himself so that the blessing could come to us. And that's how he can do it. And when you know that, when you know he did all that for you, that means you no longer have to prove yourself or make a name for yourself. When you get baptized, we put the name of the Lord on you. And that means work now is just about work. It's not about getting a name for myself. And sex is not just, a, it's just, a, it's, it's just a way of saying I love you to the person you're married to. In other words, so, these things now become ways of serving others instead of ways of making a name for yourself. And now you're part of the city of God. By grace. And you know where it all starts? Do you know how you can more and more make yourself a person who's really living like a citizen of the city of God instead of the city of man? Repent. Repent every time somebody gives you the opportunity. Repent. And you won't be ruined. You'll be restored and made a citizen. Savior, if of Zion's city, I by grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All its boasted pomps and show. Lasting joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us uh, citizenship in your city. We sit down now at your table. We're in your family. We're members of your city. And we pray that you would show us what it means to live lives in accordance with these great truths of the gospel. It's in your name, Jesus' name, that we pray.
1: cornerstone sure foundation you are faithful to the end we are waiting on you Jesus we believe you're all Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. we will worship jesus you are all to us jesus you are
3: Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries awaits for your participation in the listener survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address or online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for the paper survey is P.O. Box four nine, Glendale, Arizona, 85312. This survey ends October 31st. We await for your participation and thank you for your input.
0: Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount.
3: Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston. Today we're going to continue with our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we learned about Matthew chapter 5 verse 4, which spoke about the blessings upon those who mourn. I believe you have experienced Jesus' true comfort while mourning over sin this past week. Today is our fourth broadcast on the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll take a look at Matthew 5.5 where Jesus said, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. How would you define someone who is gentle? Usually people think of someone who is soft and warm-hearted. However, when Jesus says gentle, it doesn't mean what we normally think of as being born with a soft personality. What Jesus means of the word gentle is a personality we develop through the Holy Spirit once we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. We also know that gentleness is one of the nine fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Believers of Jesus confess that they are poor in spirit and mourn over their sin. A personality that forms through the Holy Spirit within the people of God is gentleness. Jesus' word gentle here is a Greek adjective, praeis. This word praeis includes meanings such as being kind, thoughtful, self-restraint, and many more. It means getting used to the master enough to obey and rely on his will and his servant. Ultimately, the term gentleness in the Bible means obeying God's will and his sovereignty. In order to obey God's will, we have to first know who God is. We should submit ourselves to God's plans instead of following our own thoughts. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If we truly believe that God's thoughts are as high as the heavens are from the earth, then we're able to lay our thoughts down before him even if the situation seems to be difficult. I'm sure that you are familiar with the story of Job. When Satan tested Job and Job lost all of his children and his property, what was his reaction? Job said, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job one twenty two also says, Through all this Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job's attitude of obeying God without blaming him in his suffering is what Jesus means by being gentle. We can find gentleness in Jesus as well. Before blameless Jesus went to take the cross for our sin, what did his prayer in the Mount of Olives look like? Luke 22.42 says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. Even though Jesus was innocent and did not have to take the cross, he prayed that not his will, but God's will be done. When we carefully read the Bible, we find that a lot of characters in the Bible become more gentle as time goes by. I can even come up with a few examples right now. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Paul, and many more. Some brothers and sisters in Christ near us may also be gentle. Moreover, you may be finding yourself changing and becoming more gentle in Jesus Christ. Do you know who is described as the man who was very humble, more so, than any man on the face of the earth in the Bible? Yes, it's Moses. Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. But in the very same chapter, there is an incident in which Moses' sister Miriam and Moses' brother Aaron criticize Moses and his authority of being a leader. Through this incident, God becomes enraged towards them and Miriam becomes leprous. Even though Miriam and Aaron criticized and attacked him, Moses prayed to God asking him to heal Miriam without explaining himself to them. And the Bible recognizes such behavior as being gentle. However, Moses was not gentle from the beginning. When he was young and used to live as a prince of Egypt, he saw an Egyptian hitting a Hebrew, and Moses killed the Egyptian and hid him under the sand. And once the incident was discovered and revealed, he became afraid and escaped from the Pharaoh to the land of Midian. But Moses, who wasn't able to control his temper, becomes gentle through God who guides his life. In this way, many people of God, including the people in the Bible, are not always born with gentleness, because it's a fruit that develops through the Holy Spirit after meeting God. Then what is the blessing that God promises to give to those who are gentle? Since they will inherit the earth, they are recognized as blessed. Actually, this promise did not first appear in the New Testament. Psalms 37.11 in the Old Testament says, But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Jesus, who is the word become flesh, is re-explaining the words in the Bible to Jews living in that time period. Psalms 37 has 40 verses, and it's too long for me to read, but I recommend that you find and read it. Psalms 37 says not to fret or be envious of evildoers and wrongdoers, because even though they may seem well, they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. This chapter compares the acts of the righteous and the acts of the wicked. The chapter concludes with proclaiming that the transgressors will be destroyed, and God will deliver the righteous from the wicked and save them. Similar messages are repeated, such as verse 11, which I have read before. I will read verses 9, 22, 29, and 34. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him, Will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. You should know that the earth Jesus speaks of in Psalms 37 and in his Sermon on the Mount does not mean the physical earth we are living in. If he meant so, Christians would all be rich with many lands. The earth promised to those who are gentle is not the earth in this world that may be taken away one day or decay over time. Those who are gentle will enjoy and inherit the earth that belongs to Jesus. They will rule over it with Jesus as a royal priesthood. On the day of glory, they will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. Those who think that their thoughts are higher than the thoughts of God will eventually be cut off and be destroyed. On the other hand, gentle people who submit themselves to God's sovereignty will not even have to conquer the earth, but will inherit it. Isn't it so overwhelming and exciting? The reason why Jesus said it's a blessing is because his promised gift is not temporary, but eternal. Perhaps that you think you're not a gentle person and may even feel upset by the thought. Actually, all of us might believe that we don't quite reach the gentleness standard of Jesus. That's why we should learn about gentleness. If we can learn it, who would we learn it from? Matthew chapter 11, verses 28-30 through 30 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We should go near to Jesus who is gentle and humble every day. Listen to his words and learn. Our uncontrollable temper and thoughts should be surrendered to Jesus' words. Every day we will experience the work of the Holy Spirit that changes us to be more gentle. James chapter one verse twenty one says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted in you which is able to save your souls. Today we looked at the third blessing in the Beatitudes written in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Next week, we will learn about verse 6. I pray that you and I will come near to Jesus every day. Thank you for listening, and please join me next time as we continue with the Sermon on the Mount.
0: ship, thought to be unsinkable, sank into the ocean just four days after departure. We will never know the reason why each person decided to board the Titanic. But none of them knew that they would be faced with death that fateful day. They tried everything to survive. A particular thought came to my mind when I watched the movie Titanic. You and I will one day be faced with death just like the people on the ocean liner. I wonder how we will act in that moment. The people who were frantically looking for a way to survive probably thought that the men playing a hymn were out of their minds. This was a critical time and everyone was trying to find a way to survive. People may have thought that playing the hymn at this time was foolish, but we know what is right. We know what it is to stay calm. How we live and die in this world is not everything because we have a place that's for eternity. This is what the Bible tells us. Revelations chapter 14 verse 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. If we did not have Jesus in our hearts at a time like this, we would be full of despair. Because we have Jesus in our hearts, we are able to remain calm. We do not have to run around screaming and frightened like the other people of the world. At our death, we know we will see Jesus. I hope that we are like Hartley, boldly giving praise to God on a sinking ship waiting happily for the time when we will meet Jesus. I think it is possible when we live every day with God in our hearts. A person that does not have a relationship with God may not be able to remain calm in the face of death. That day will definitely come to us all. None of us can avoid it. Do you ever think about that day? Are you preparing for that day while living in this world? We are living in this world now, but remember we are members of the eternal world in heaven. We must prepare every day of our lives. I pray that we are all ready for that day that Jesus calls us home and we can joyfully run to Him. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. My name is Veronica Kim, and I hope to meet you again next week. Until then, God bless.
4: How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son And make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the Chosen One Bring many sons to glory Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice called out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me to life.